And if you can believe it, we're at the conclusion of the book of Haggai. Actually, if you have it open, you can understand why we're at the conclusion. It's a pretty short book. Um, it only spans two chapters, and it's got just, if you counted, 38 verses. This book that appears third to last in the Old Testament is part of what's known as what are called the minor prophets. And as I always tell my middle school students when we're studying the Bible, minor prophets doesn't mean they're less important. Minor refers to the fact that their works tend to be shorter than prophets who are considered major like Isaiah and Jeremiah. So I hope we've seen that Haggai has something very, very um, useful and relevant for us. What's interesting, if you're familiar at all with the prophetic writings in the Bible, though, about Haggai, is contrary to popular beliefs about prophets, Haggai doesn't speak to the future. I don't know how much we've noticed that as much as he directly speaks to the present. In fact, we, thanks to the very specific documentation of his prophecies, which is kind of unique to his book, the Lord's messages through Haggai are kind of easy for us to date. Based on the records in the book, if you were to go ahead and do that, if that's your thing, the, his messages were delivered within a 15-week period from August 29th to December 18th B.C., 520 B.C., and that's a little less than over four months that he delivered these four sermons. What's also interesting about Haggai is we know very little about him. We know very little about this man that God spoke to and through. We have no biographical data concerning Haggai. He's given no formal introduction in this book other than designating him as the Lord's prophet, his spokesman, to a people that are returning from exile. And as I said just a second ago, we don't know a lot about Haggai, but we do know something about his audience, the people that he was speaking to. He speaks to a, major, a minority excuse me, of Jews who have chosen to return to their homeland after a period of exile. They've chosen to return. They've been allowed to restore their capital city of Jerusalem in the temple. And the primary focus of that journey was to rebuild their community and specifically to rebuild the temple of the Lord that was pillaged and laid waste two years ago by the Babylonians. And as you recall, over these last few weeks, the first three sermons of Haggai have been spoken directly to the people in addressing the lack of progress, the struggle with rebuilding their community and restoring the temple. Through Haggai, God has sought to inspire, to encourage, and to correct the thoughts and practices of the community as a whole. But in the last sermon of this book, in his fourth and last message, it's delivered not to the community as a whole, but it's delivered specifically towards the governor of the city, Zerubbabel. Now, this is kind of interesting because, again, up to now, Haggai, or God through Haggai, has addressed everyone, but now the last message specifically focuses on one person. And you might ask, what's to account for that? You might ask, why, what would Haggai have to say that wouldn't be for all the community but so life-changing, so important for one man, for Zerubbabel? And more than that, if you're pragmatic when you come to church on Sunday, you may be thinking, if maybe you've been struggling with Haggai, what in God's name does God's message for one man have anything to do with me? My name's not Zerubbabel. Anyone named Zerubbabel here? That name's kind of fallen out of fashion. What does this have to do with me? And so as we come to the end of Haggai, I invite us to hear God's message for one man so that we might perhaps glean something that God is also saying to us. So if you have Haggai open, it's chapter 2, four short verses, starting with verse 20. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, 
declares the Lord Almighty. I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatol, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. This ends the book of Haggai, and this ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Haggai, if you didn't catch this, and I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't, Haggai preaches this last sermon on the same day that he preaches the third sermon, the one that we looked at last week. He preaches a third sermon to the whole of the people, and then on that same day he then turns and preaches his last sermon. God addresses specifically Zerubbabel. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, there's a backdrop um, to the Lord's final words here that will be critical to our understanding of what he has to say to Zerubbabel. And so I want to kind of summarize briefly this backstory for us. A couple things you may or may not know about Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is more than a governor. We've been introduced to him as the governor of this rebuilding community. Um, But he's more than a governor who has been sent to oversee a building project. Royal blood flows through Zerubbabel's veins because he's a direct descendant of King David. And what's significant is that we need to remember that even though the Jews were allowed to return to their homeland, they're still under the reign of the Persian Empire. And as a result, even though there's royal blood flowing through Zerubbabel's veins, he can only be a governor. They're not allowed to have kings of their own for obvious reasons, so he's a governor. Now, what you also don't know about Zerubbabel is his grandfather was a man named Jeconiah. Jeconiah was many years earlier, many, many years earlier, the last ruler of this territory, of Judah, before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and conquered the land. Think about Jeconiah, though, Zerubbabel's grandfather. Jeconiah was a wicked king who did not serve the Lord. In fact, he led the people astray. In fact, as the Lord will say to Jeconiah at the time, his reign was, in fact, the culmination of generations of unfaithfulness within his family line. Generations of unfaithfulness within Zerubbabel's family line. And with Jeconiah, the Lord had had enough. The book of Jeremiah actually records God's message to Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jeconiah. In chapter 22, the Lord says something which perhaps will illuminate what we just heard from Haggai. In chapter 22 of the book of Jeremiah, the Lord says this to Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jeconiah. You were like a signet ring in my hand, but because of your sin, I am taking you off my finger. God strips the kingship from Zerubbabel's grandfather and allows the Babylonians to overthrow Judah. This is the beginning of the end. Jeconiah is deported with the rest of his subjects into exile. To this judgment in chapter 22 of Jeremiah, the Lord also adds these words. Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Jeconiah is being told that not only will he be punished, but all of his descendants will be punished as well, and none of them will ever sit on the throne of David. Now, even if you don't have an intimate knowledge of biblical history, I think we can understand what life must have been like generations later for Zerubbabel, can't we? Can you imagine him as I can, growing up as a little boy, 
hearing all about his royal lineage, and yet with every mention of his pedigree, being reminded of the great failure and loss that he also inherited from his family? Can you picture him standing before us, a great man with a kingly heritage, but with no kingdom of his own? No crown, no throne, no scepter, no army, no chariots. His only title is that of governor. His only job is, let's be honest, a temporary one, an appointed position. He's what we call today the transitional guy. His only responsibility is to oversee a building project. And if we even go further, how has Zerubbabel fared to this point? We can read between the lines in Haggai. How has Zerubbabel fared to this point? What, was his, what would his self-evaluation read like? When permission to return and rebuild had been granted, when the invitation to come home had been sent out, only a small remnant of 50,000 people came back. His grandfather had once reigned over hundreds of thousands, but only a handful, a minority, returned to work under Zerubbabel's leadership. Added to this, the promising start to the big homecoming, as you recall, fizzles out as a quick malaise falls over the community and a 15-year work stoppage results. Zerubbabel can't help but feel ineffective. His reign more like his grandfather's than he probably cared to admit, as the Jews who returned under his charge seemed more concerned with their own comfort and prosperity than with the things of God. If there is a consistent message in all of Haggai's preaching up to this point, it's this. Many of the Jews in the community were religious outwardly, but their hearts were not right with God. And if any of us have ever been in charge, you know that when you're in charge and something like that gets said about the people that you're in charge of, the ultimate responsibility lies with you. So, here is Zerubbabel, a governor, not a king, ineffectively leading a fickle minority who over 15 years has little to show for it, physically or spiritually. I mean, the temple is still in pieces and the progress is slow moving. The fields and the storehouses, as we've heard, have been barren during a long economic downturn. The walls of Jerusalem are still torn down, leaving the city vulnerable to their surrounding hostile neighbors who have made no, made no business of hiding the fact that they oppose this Jewish resettlement. And so in the eyes of the world, perhaps even in his own estimation, Zerubbabel is less than he could have been. Less than he should have been. But now, through the prophet Haggai, God turns to Zerubbabel and tells him that the time is coming when he, the Lord, will shake the heavens and the earth. God points Zerubbabel towards the horizon to the day that is coming when he, the Lord, will turn the world upside down. Every nation, every kingdom, every symbol of human power will be once and for all brought under his, the Lord's authority. And to all of this, God adds something extraordinary, specifically directed at Zerubbabel. I will make you my signet ring. Beloved, all of Haggai's messages to this point have been public, but here God's grace gets personal. 
The man who grew up all his life being told that his family was cursed. The couldn't-be king who thought he'd just have to settle for being a governor. The seemingly transitional guy who failed to recruit a majority and struggled even to keep the minority focused on task is assured that he will be a part of the reach of God's hand. The signet ring that was once removed is now back on the Lord's finger. I'm not sure how many of us are familiar with the concept of a signet ring. That image is so powerful here in this part of the text, and certainly as it connects back to the words to Zerubbabel's grandfather in Jeremiah. When an ancient king wanted to affix his seal to a document, he would take his signet ring and impress it into soft wax, and then would, it would harden into an unbreakable seal. And this seal was intended to testify to the authenticity of the written order or decree to which that wax had been applied. This seal guaranteed both payment of any expenses that the subordinate incurred in carrying out this order, and it also gave that subordinate full authority to act on the king's behalf in all matters regarding the order. Perhaps the closest analogy for us in our times would be an identification bag, a company credit card, and a power of attorney all rolled up into one. The signet ring was more than just a decorative ring. It signified honor, authority, ownership, preservation, tender regard, special relationship, and a personal guarantee of safety. In publicly declaring him as his signet ring, the Lord was giving Zerubbabel something better than a kingship. He was giving him a promise of significance, of exercising his sovereign power through Zerubbabel's life. He was giving him a sign of assurance of the reconciliation and restoration of his family to the line of David. Now, if you're familiar at all with what comes next, Zerubbabel never sits on the throne of David. In that sense, the words that Jeremiah spoke for the Lord to his grandfather were true. But what the Lord introduces here to Zerubbabel is a different understanding, a different hope. Because even though Zerubbabel never sat on the throne of David, if we know history, one of his descendants did. God had chosen here Zerubbabel as a sign that is a representative of the nature of the servant that God was intending, that God would have and bring to us the ultimate expression of a servant 500 years later, the greatest son Zerubbabel would ever know. A baby born in Bethlehem called Jesus Christ. The angel said, the angel Gabriel said of Jesus, you recall, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. We ought to notice, if we never caught it before, that in those boring genealogical lists in Matthew and Luke, you will find the name Zerubbabel. And so Haggai ends with a stirring word of encouragement to a discouraged leader. It's God's way of saying, don't give up. Don't give up, Zerubbabel. Don't ever give up. You have no idea how great my plans are for you. And beloved, it's a good word not just for one man, not just for one family. It's God's good word for all persons and all families to hear and to consider as we face the challenges of today. 
the highest and most definitive blessing of the Lord towards Zerubbabel is embodied in the life, death, and resurrection of one person, the Son, Jesus Christ. And this is God's present not only to Zerubbabel and his family, it's God's present to all the world. It is also the Lord's gift to each and every one of us. And just like Zerubbabel, we can hear the word that the Lord offers to the group. Remember, Zerubbabel's been a part of the first three messages of Haggai. We can be, a, be like Zerubbabel and hear the words that the Lord gives to the group. Words of grace, faith, hope, and love. But just like Zerubbabel, sometimes we need God to deliver, to tailor a message just for me. Maybe, like him, it's hard for you to get past the feeling that you've been dealt an unfair hand in terms of your life. Maybe, like Zerubbabel, you could be tempted to look at your circumstances, your struggles, your deficits, and like him, think what could have been if it hadn't been for someone else's sin, someone else's mistake, someone else's failure. I'm paying the price for someone else's screw-up. I'm stuck in a hole of debt, of shame, of guilt, of sickness, you name it. I'm stuck in a hole that I inherited and I'll never be able to climb out of it. Or maybe like Zerubbabel, we spend all of our time fixating on our mistakes, big or small, of on all the things that we didn't accomplish, that we couldn't get done. Maybe part of the reason the community did nothing for 15 years is because it had a leader who couldn't let go of how small a group actually showed up who couldn't let go of how little progress they seemed to be making and rebuilding. Who knows? Maybe we can relate to that possibility. Maybe we can relate to using so much of our time grieving over what didn't happen, lamenting again and again over that which never materialized in our lives, that we begin to turn everything into a self-fulfilling prophecy of coulda, woulda, shoulda. It's never been good enough. So I'll never be good enough. Beloved, I believe there's a little bit of Zerubbabel in you and me. I know in my own journey of faith, and I know certainly as a pastor, that this most striking thing I confront in myself, let alone in the people that I get to minister to, is that the greatest obstacle often to the grace, the faith, the love, the hope of God is ourselves. Sometimes we believe that the Lord speaks to the whole I encounter this so often in the church, people who show up every Sunday, who are here every Sunday, participating, engaged, and yet one-on-one -on -one when I talk to them, yes, they absolutely hear the good news, the gospel for all, but they haven't let it apply to their own life. It doesn't apply to them. I, I encounter people who find it hard to believe in themselves through God's eyes. They can believe in God, but if you ask them to see themselves as God sees them, you're asking for an even greater level of belief. They can talk, they can sing, they can pray, they can invoke the Lord's forgiveness. They can even impart it to others. But if you ask them to be able to forgive themselves, I can't believe how many people in the church, and again, this is also, these people would be myself, that 
I can lift high Jesus Christ. Oh, I can lift high the name of Christ. But if I'm asked to conceive of my significance in Christ, I can barely raise my hands. I don't know your story. Some of your stories I know, parts and pieces, but there's no way I can know everything. But you wouldn't be the first if you're sitting there, if you've sat there, if at any point in your life you've said something like, there's no hope for me. There's no hope for me. The family I come from is broken beyond repair. I could tell you stories, things that some people in my family don't even know. You don't get it. My inheritance is a legacy of poor decisions and seismic losses. I mean, we put up a good front, but it's bad. It's in shambles. And I don't know what you see when you see me. I do a good job of showing you a good front. But if you really got to know me, to know me, you'd find out that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. My choices have been terrible. My choices in my life have been terrible. I can't seem to bring out the best in anyone. I'm always the transitional person. I'm always the transitional person in my job, in my relationships, here today, gone tomorrow, but I never go the distance. The people I'm with, the people like me, they always start strong, but they never finish the job. We look in the mirror, we look back, and we say, my past is checkered, and my present isn't any more promising. Therefore, my future is hopeless. And for most people I encounter, for them, they equate the grace of God to squeaking by. I'll get in on a technicality. Beloved, despite all of his fears, all of his doubts, all his family history, all of his surrounding trouble, the Lord tells Zerubbabel, I have chosen you. And to you and me today, God makes the same declaration yet again. I have chosen you. In the midst of a world that can be grossly unfair, this God and Jesus Christ takes upon himself the raw deal, the forsaken life, the bad hand that we all realize at some point that we're holding on to. And through his willing submission on the cross, paying the price for all of us, Jesus extends his hand of redemption, of friendship, of salvation to each one of us. I have chosen you. These words said to Zerubbabel are words for you and me today. We each have been chosen. Because of Christ's work on the cross, Paul will say that we have been brought into God's family, that we are a part of his family, his kingdom now, spiritually, by faith. Like Zerubbabel, we have been given the Lord's signet ring, a sign and seal of his protection and possession of us. And the seal that we have been given is not a physical ring. It is the gift, the abiding presence of the Lord's Holy Spirit. Again, Paul Capturing this imagery tells us in 2 Corinthians, God set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts, guaranteeing what is to come. Beloved, through the spirit, our destiny in Christ has been sealed. It is secure. We are eternally protected. We have the Lord's power with us and within us. 
Another way to think about it, perhaps the most simplistic way, is that when we speak of treasure, this treasure that's ours to claim in Christ, the treasure that's ours to claim is that we are God's treasured possession. What a beautiful image of the promises that we invoke made by God every time we celebrate the sacrament of baptism. That we have God's signet ring. Beloved, as we come to the end of Haggai, the overriding message to one man and to all people is that our hope for the future is based on faith, but it's faith in a promise, a promise based on a choice, a choice not of our own, but of God. Jesus will perhaps summarize the whole of Haggai and certainly the whole of what God says here to Zerubbabel when he says to his disciples, to you and to me, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and to produce lasting fruit. Beloved, we don't just have God's signet ring. If you catch the imagery that God gives to Zerubbabel, we are his signet ring to the world. We are his servants and his seal. We are protected. We have authority and power that goes with that kind of a ring to serve as the part of God's kingdom plan. Each one of us Every single person that I've seen before me today, every single one of you has been chosen, called into ministry for God. Right where you are, wherever you are, whether it's in a pulpit, a hospital, a classroom, a business, how you raise your your children, how you love your spouse, the Lord has chosen you to stand for him as his representative. Have we heard this message in the last four weeks? God's wake-up call, that our lives are not about the choices that we make, but our lives are fundamentally about the choice that God has made for us. Because we end where we started in Haggai. We end where we started with the Lord's calling, with God's promise. For me in my own life, and I'd be lying if I said I still don't struggle with it, if it's still not part of the sanctifying, transforming work that God is doing in my life. Just as we see Haggai continuing to speak to the people, speak to them in the midst of their understanding about blessings, speak to them in the midst of their living in the past, so it is for me. But there was a decisive moment, perhaps decisive as it was for the people when Haggai first preached one of these sermons, when I realized that I was the biggest obstacle to the work that God was trying to do in my life. That I could believe in God, but I couldn't believe that God believed in me. That I could believe that God forgives, but I couldn't believe that I could forgive myself. That I could believe that God was to be lifted up high, but that I was to be kept down low. And when I finally came to understand, because it feels right, it feels good to to create that separation. Well, I believe in God, but it would just be prideful and arrogant to believe that God could believe in me. I can believe that God forgives, but it would just be presumptuous for me to actually forgive myself, to give myself that permission. I mean, I can praise God, but far be it from me to take any joy in my life of God working through me. That's just arrogant. It sounds right. And for many of us, that's how we've been raised and taught. But that's not the gospel. And what I came to realize is that by me continuing to live in that false gospel, for me continuing to hold on to those things, to not allow that belief that God has in me to sink in, to not allow that forgiveness that God has given me to empower me to forgive myself, to not allow myself to take joy and pride in Christ working in me in my life, 
What I was doing was not only creating an obstacle to God's work in my life, but I was creating an obstacle to God's work through my life. I wasn't answering God's call. I wasn't serving because I was creating the obstacle to what God purposed to do through me. To understand that you are the signet ring of God is not only to understand that we are protected, we are assured, we are sealed, but it is to also understand that we have been blessed to be a blessing. Beloved, despite our doubts, despite our fears, our family history, whatever troubles that surround us, we have each been chosen and therefore we are protected, empowered and filled with confident hope no matter what or who comes this way in our life. And we are given this incredible transforming gift not so that we can sit idly by. But when you come to understand that this is who you are in Christ, it gets you moving. It gets you going. And we need to hear and fully understand God's call in our life. We return to where we started. Beloved, what is informing your identity? Who is authoring your destiny? Are you still believing that your choices matter more than God's choice of you? Are you still living in the past? Living in the past, waxing for what could have been and and as a way of avoiding what's right in front of you and going into your future? Are you still struggling with blessing? Are you still looking for the things of God rather than realizing that you have the person of God in your life and that's the true blessing? Are you like Zerubbabel hearing it said but saying it doesn't apply to me? It's not, that's not, that doesn't speak to me. Hear the word of the Lord through the prophet Haggai. Answer the call of God through the prophet Haggai because, beloved, It seems to me that we live in a world where more and more something dark and desperate is always looming on the horizon for us here on earth. We need to hear and answer this call because more and more what surrounds us is this sense of gloom and doom. Whether it's terrorism that's reported from abroad or whether it's terrorism that strikes and shocks us in a movie theater. Whether it's a depressed global economy that seems to be getting worse rather than better, whether it's another long buried scandal, picket, that finally comes to light, and in the wake of all the burying, in the wake of all the stuffing in a closet, it just ripples, not only through the individuals who are affected, but through the community of a nation and of the nations of the world. We live in an increasingly fearful and paranoid world where despite how plugged in we are, more and more people feel disconnected and alone. They feel forgotten. They feel forsaken. They feel hopeless. We need to embrace what God is saying to us through Haggai. We need to answer and receive God's call, his choice for us, because there are people who have not heard, who do not know. They need to see, as we have been given eyes to see, the kingdom that is coming on the horizon, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that will instead shake the nations and overcome the world, a kingdom into which all who are exiled have been invited. They need, just as we need every day, to hear God's ringing endorsement, written just for them as it was for Zerubbabel, We are surrounded, each one of us, with people in our lives who've never heard, who do not know, 
who believe the opposite, that they, are, they think they're alone. They think they're doomed. They think they're lost. They need to hear God's word for Zerubbabel, God's word to us, the Lord's assurance, his declaration that he has chosen each one of us even before the foundations of the world. Beloved in Christ, we come to the end of the book of Haggai. We come to the end of a prophet that God used long ago to speak to a people who had stopped building, who had stopped the work of God in their community and in their lives. We come to the end of the story for them, but not for us. Will we get back to work? Will we build? Will we live into our identity and destiny in Christ? Will we answer God's call? Lives are on the line. The nation is at stake, and the world is waiting.